We know I'm the dinosaur around here. It's okay. This episode is sponsored by Less Accounting. Are you looking for a system that makes it easy to track all of your expenses, income, and your budget? Is QuickBooks too much of a pain for you? It was for me, and I switched to Less Accounting, and I love it. It makes things really easy to keep track of and gives me a lot of charts and graphs that make it easy for me to look at and just know where I'm at with my expenses and everything else. One of the owners, Alan Branch, and his son have written a book for entrepreneurs' children that talks about what entrepreneurs do and why they're important. So if you're interested in that, then go to lessaccounting.com slash hero. This episode is brought to you by Audible. Audible is the first place I go to keep my business skills sharp. They offer over 150,000 books on business, finance, planning, and much more. They also have a great selection of fiction that keeps me entertained when I'm just not up for some serious content. I love it because I can buy a book, download it to my iPhone, and listen while running errands or at the gym. Get your free trial at freelancershow.com slash audible. This episode is brought to you by CodeSchool. CodeSchool offers interactive online courses in Ruby, JavaScript, HTML, CSS, and iOS. Their courses are fun and interesting and include exercises for the student. To level up your development skills, go to freelancershow.com slash CodeSchool. This episode is brought to you by ProXPN. If you're out and about on public Wi-Fi, you never know who might be listening. With ProXPN, you no longer have to worry. ProXPN is a VPN solution which sends all of your traffic over a secure connection to one of their servers around the world. To sign up, go to ProXPN.com and use the promo code TMTCS, short for Teach Me to Code Screencasts, to get 10% off for life. Hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 133 of The Freelancer Show. This week on our panel, we have Curtis McHale. Hola. Ruben Lerner. Hi, everyone. Eric Davis. Hi. I'm Charles Maxwood from DevChat.tv. And this week, we have a special guest, Peter Cooper. Hello, beautiful people. How would you know? You can't even see us. That's why. (laughs) (laughs) I've got a picture in my head. You all look lovely. (laughs) Very nice. So you want to introduce yourself really quickly, Peter? Yeah, I guess a lot of people listening to this podcast probably come from the Ruby world, so uh, my name may have come up a few places over the years as the editor of Ruby Inside, but now the editor of Ruby Weekly, which I guess is the main reason I'm here today uh, to talk about my various email adventures. I wrote Beginning Ruby, published by A-Press. Yeah, just I've released various bits of Ruby code and done lots of stuff in the Rails world. But now I am uh, principally a publisher uh, rather than a developer in um, the guise of Cooper Press, the self-named company, and I guess the most successful thing that we've done is JavaScript Weekly. Uh, I know boo hiss to JavaScript sometimes, but uh, that's been <laughs> our most successful thing, so um, that's probably where most people have heard of me nowadays, I guess. Oh, and also forget, I'm the chair of the O'Reilly Fluent Conference as well, so uh, that's another angle that people may know me from. Ah, uh, very cool. So, yeah, I mean, we've talked several times over the years. You actually were on the first few episodes of both Ruby Rogues and JavaScript Jabber. And, you know, it's it's just been a pleasure to kind of see where you wind up. I'm kind of curious, you know, as we get started talking about this, we did bring you on to talk about building and running mailing lists. How did you get started with that? What prompted you to start a mailing list about, I think, Ruby was your first one? Yeah, Ruby was the first one, and then it kind of went as a domino effect from there to you know various other technologies there, where I knew the uh, audience would have some overlap. But yeah, the beginning was basically Ruby Weekly, and I'd kind of picked up on these articles that a guy called Jason L. Baptiste had written. He runs, I think he just sold the company actually, but he was running a company called OnSwipe, which converts like WordPress blogs into uh, like tablet kind of form, and he was posting about all the stuff that he was interested in. He's like heavily involved in the startup scene. 
And he had a couple of posts to do really well on Hacker News about the kind of the rebirth of the email kind of newsletter business. And he was talking about things like, well, things like Groupon even, you know, things that were like daily deals and that, uh, kind of companies that were really oriented around using email as that notification technology. But then also news, you know, news email and there were things like Frillist were launching around that time. It was like, it was like a paradigm that was kind of coming back in again after it was kind of, you know, email was kind of deemed uncool during the Web 2.0 era. So I thought, well, hang on, you know, I can, I, I got into blogging really early and I thought, well, you know, it seems like I might be missing out on something here. So I, just had this idea of doing a weekly email, registered the domain, and I just kind of got this feeling that someone else would do it if I didn't, so that kind of scared me into doing the first one, which is actually how I do most of my work. I'm kind of worried that someone else is going to do it, and I'm going to sit there going, oh, I, you know, I had that idea first, but instead of being that person, I just tend to do the thing, and then everyone else does it to me. They're like, oh, I had that idea. So yeah, that's <laughs> how it, it began. And it's funny how often that happens. You know, you see an idea, or you, you read the same articles as other people, and you all kind of simultaneously come up with the same idea because you just all read the same stuff. Um, and this seems to be very true on Hacking News. So um, the fact that I was reading all these things about the resurgence of email and, you know, daily emails and news and all this kind of stuff coming together, I just kind of figured if, you know, I don't do it, someone else will. So it began there. When you first started, was it with the intention of being a commercial enterprise or did you just think of this as something fun and interesting to do or maybe to improve the community? Well, at the time, I was running Ruby Inside, which is now somewhat dormant and abandoned, unfortunately. But that was my main kind of gig at the time. It was doing reasonably well. So it was more of an add-on for that. It was just a way to point to like, my own content sometimes, point to other people's content here and there. But I had this kind of overarching goal of, wouldn't it be great to build up an audience that I can pitch things to? So, you know, I, I did work on some uh, training. And this is actually the reason I stopped doing the Ruby show, which Chuck mentioned. Not the Ruby show, sorry. Ruby mm-hmm. Rogues. That's the one. Yeah, I was getting mixed up with my, my other podcast. Um, yeah, so the Ruby Rogues, I, I stopped doing that because I just ran out of time for doing my own training. So I ended up selling my own training on the uh, list uh, initially. So I wasn't taking ads or anything. It was just my own stuff. But then eventually got to the point where I just had kind of more capacity in terms of advertising than I had stuff that I wanted to sell. So that's when I sort of turned it more into a business in the traditional publishing vein and, you know, started taking other people's stuff on and all that type of thing. Were you doing client work as you started this up as well? Or how did you kind of fund the initial bit? Yeah, I didn't really fund it at all. I guess it was just like the fact that Ruby Inside was, you know, making reasonable amount of money. So it was just a, an add-on to that. I haven't actually sort of done... I've, I, I do bits of client work for like very, very old clients. I've had like sort of 10 years. I just haven't had the heart to kind of get rid of them as it were. And it's uh, nice to sort of stay in touch with some of the really old clients. Very, very minimal amount of hours per month. But I didn't actually need to do any of this, do any client work since, uh, when was it, 2007 when I sold... Um, well, actually, I sold two sites. I sold a, a code snippet site that I created in Rails, built up, and was quite popular. I sold that to Z- DZone for not not an amazing amount of money, but like a you know a mid five figure sum. And then I sold a kind of a technology I built called Feed Digest, which took like RSS feeds and let you splice them together and republish them and do all sorts of clever stuff with RSS. And then I sold that for a six figure sum to a Russian company, um, which was rather odd. Uh, they since rebranded it, called it Feed Informer, I think. I haven't checked it up for a while, but it still exists, I believe. Um, but from that point, I kind of had a, I didn't have, you know, life, well, I guess it was a life-changing amount of money, but it wasn't like a retirement amount of money. It was kind of a, I can kind of do what I want, and if it screws up, then I've got, you know, a couple of years, and then I'll just get back to doing what I was doing. So I kind of, in my screwing around, that's when the Ruby book and the Ruby inside and 
all that type of stuff kind of kept me going on a day-to-day basis. So it actually kind of worked out in the end. So it was, it was a nice runway to have. So I didn't have to actually do the client work. So, so your full-time work now is doing this publishing, meaning that this combination of newsletters is enough for a full-time salary? Yes. Well, I, I began the Ruby one in, I think it was August 2010. So I guess it's been going four years now. And so for the first couple of years, actually, no, just the first full year, actually, it wasn't really a huge deal. Once 2012 hit and I actually started taking, you know, started having serious numbers of subscribers, I was sort of, well, I was probably up to, I don't know, 70, 80,000 at least across the network and actually took advertising full time and was really you know, pushing it. Then it, yeah, it was like, you know, pretty much immediately better than what I was earning before. And then it's only gone up from there. So, you know, it's quite a nice business. It's not a huge business. You know, I don't have like tons of employees or anything. In fact, I'm still even considering hiring my first person just because it's, I've scaled it in such a way I can do it all myself. Well, I say that I do have some editors that kind of do bits and pieces, but so in terms of like full time stuff, it's just me. So yeah, no, it's it's been very good to me. Um, I'm very happy with it, and it is my full time thing. So I, I want to talk a bit about building mailing lists. I know that you know your focus is probably a little different from what freelancers do, but I think you face some of the same challenges. So for example, how do you let people know that you're giving out this content on the web? I mean, it, is it word of mouth at this point? And how did you initially get the word out about it? So I read an article a few years ago about how Facebook grew. And I seem to recall the author used the term the domino effect. So they basically said that Mark Zuckerberg, and he forgot his name then, uh, Mark Zuckerberg began, in, what was it, in Harvard? And then he branched out to like where a lot of people from Harvard knew other people. He kind of worked out, you know, they knew a lot of people at like MIT, let's say, just around the corner. And so then he branched out to one, then the other, and so on and so forth. And I've always applied that since I've kind of heard that. I've always thought that's a really logical way of doing it. So now when I create things, I think, well, where's the domino going to come from that launches this thing? So Ruby Weekly, you know, the domino that led to Ruby Weekly was Ruby Inside. So I already had 30,000 RSS subscribers. So I knew that I could convert a certain amount of those into being on the email. And then over time, as that kind of worked, I then realized, well, hang on, a lot of these people would be interested in JavaScript. So I created the JavaScript one, then the HTML5 one, and then it's kind of gone out from there. Now, this obviously isn't going to apply to everyone because not everyone has, you know, a successful blog or even like, you know, lots of uh, Twitter followers. But I mean, I guess another way of looking at it is a bit like a snowball effect. You know, you have to start from something, build up a, a small amount of, you know, audience, but then just find ways of keep adding to it or use that to roll into something new. So yeah, I've always just leaned on all the different things I have online, whether it's my blogs or now whether it's my emails. You know, I use my newsletters now to launch other newsletters like all the time. That is my main technique. Um, I don't do a lot of paid advertising. I don't do lots of just constantly spamming everyone on Twitter or, or even Hacker News. I don't even think any of my newsletters have actually made it onto Hacker News or Product Hunt or anything like that just because I don't ever push it like in that way you know so i've just been very lucky in that regard i've just kind of always tried to build an audience around me perhaps in almost like a gary vaynerchuk kind of style uh you know he always goes on about the fact that he's on every platform and that he's always putting out videos and he's always doing this you know this and that not with a specific goal of you know i want to kind of sell you my stuff but he just wants to build up this kind of brand and people to know him and that when he does want to launch stuff he can just sort of go right hook, basically, and just like, bam, you know, join this new thing I've done, and bam, it's popular. Um, and I've seen a lot of popular people online do that, so I just kind of do it at a much smaller scale than those people. It seems to work. Very nice. One other thing I've noticed about your emails that I've kind of struggled with off and on is that they look really professional. How do you get such a nice-looking email layout? 
it's funny actually because I often look at them and I go, oh god, this looks like crap, like compared to something else that I've seen, and uh, I think, oh, I want to redesign it again. I have to kind of stop myself. So yeah, it's it's kind of nice to hear that, um, I guess. But yeah, I guess my kind of main goal is really to try and boil things down to the simplest thing that will work. Uh, so it's very tempting and. I always do this when I start a new design, like for a website or something. I think, right, I want to have these custom fonts and it will look awesome. And, you know, I'll put these like rounded corners on or I'll do this and I'll do that and I'll use all these colors and so on. And then what happens? I go, oh, this looks really horrible. Uh, and then I'll start, I'll think, well, I'll remove the custom fonts because it's kind of slow and think, oh, yeah, it looks kind of better with the default fonts. And then I'll remove some of the colors and then I'll remove some of the features. And I'll be like, actually, this is a really clean design now. So I'm always designing stuff in that way. And that's true of the emails as well. So I don't, you know, set out with a goal of it necessarily being simple i kind of make it everything i want it to be and then i'm like i don't like this and then i pare it down to what is the basic stuff that works and that seems to work for me i mean what i would recommend though for other people is if you can get away with it i would actually make your email just text now this is going to be probably slightly controversial because most people that run you know frequent newsletters and so on are always using html but that's actually kind of a good reason to use text. You actually, depending on what you're doing, you also, you do want to look like you're kind of natural at some level. Um, and text really is a way of doing that. And I have a lot of people that subscribe to my newsletters in the plain text form. Uh, we do produce them, um, separately as well that people can get. So some people really like text and it just looks like a normal email. So if you can't design and if you don't want to go and buy a template on, uh, one of these kind of theme forest type sites, which, um, I think they do some good templates actually for email. Uh, but if you don't want to go and find stuff like that, just go to text. You know, if you can make it work in text, then your react results are going to be just as good, if not better. I'm wondering what your schedule looks like. Like, you know, how do you divide your week up? What are the different tasks you have to deal with? Clearly, you have to, I'm sure, do some reading to find links. I'm sure people submit them as well. But then, I mean, you've got a business to run. You've got advertising to find. You've got email to send out. What do you do all week, Peter, besides sit around and <laughs> <laughs> well, that's the trick number one. I don't watch a lot of TV, but, uh, yeah, I guess this is going to sound like a facetious answer, but actually the majority of my week is spent waking up, kids wake me up, deal with the kids, run around screaming, tidy the house, do the washing up, make, you know, like get involved with breakfast, you know, kids have to go to school and this, that and the other. And then like when I get home, the kids are there. I play with the kids, put the kids to bed. Like I'm, there's just so much family stuff going on for me right now. It's absolutely ridiculous. And I'm sure. A lot of people in like the startup world or whatever just you know perhaps don't get to see their kids so much. It's just kind of become a natural part of life for me, and it's kind of infuriating some of the times. But then when you look back on it, it's like actually I kind of value spending that time. So I guess fortunately, but also unfortunately for my kind of bank balance, I guess I'm not one of these people that does like you know 80 hour weeks. And I suspect you know there's so much opportunity I've got that I, if I did spend that time, I'd probably you know do something really good with it. But a lot of time does go to the family, so. With that out of the way, um, I have to be very, very efficient with my time because literally there's something going on like every night. You know, I just took my daughter literally before this to a swimming lesson. So, you know, I have to like leave work at like three in the afternoon and all that type of thing, you know, and I've only got in at like eight or nine in the morning. So the amount of hours I have in a day is very small. But the way I counteract that is with technology. So in what I'm doing in publishing generally, actually, uh, it's amazing how much you can make up with technology. So when I began, it used to take, you know, a serious amount of time to make a single issue or a single email. And people I speak to, you know, who create their own similar things, they're like, oh, I was in the MailChimp UI for like two hours generating this issue of whatever I was doing. And, you know, it takes a long time to get it right. 
But once you realize what is right, and if you are a developer as well, and this is where the magic part happens, you can say, well, hang on, how can I make this more efficient? Um, and in my case, it was like, well, hang on, MailChimp's got a really cool API. So I can perhaps build my own templates with ERB, uh, the Ruby templating language, for anyone who doesn't know it. And then I can perhaps feed in some XML, and I know Boo here says XML, but I could feed in some XML that kind of represents how I want an issue to be uh, with all the different items in it, uh, and then have it generate everything, use the API, create the campaign, run the test, and all I literally have to do is go preview, yeah, it looks good, send. I did that very, very quickly. So that really cut the time on production down. It then basically came down to, like, I need to click the links together. Well, over time, I then also built a system to do that, so like a mini kind of version of Delicious that's very oriented on this type of stuff. No, it's not public. A lot of people have asked. It's not public at this point. But I know people that have actually used things like um, Pinboard, I think it's called, like the delicious kind of style system. That I know people that have used that and then used the RSS export and you put that into MailChimp. So there's lots of different ways you can do it. But I've always found just tooling is what saves me time. So yeah, I work a very minimal amount of time for what it looks like I do. But then, yeah, the majority of the rest of my time is then spent dealing with the advertising and the business side of it. So I'd say at least 50% of it is that kind of human contact side. What do you have to do with the advertising? Do you find that people come to you or do you need to still reach out to advertisers? No, I've never... I'm trying to think, have I ever... I don't know if I'm lying there, but I don't think I've done any outreach with this. It's always been people have seen the emails and then want to advertise and then they reach out to me. So I've been very lucky in that regard. I mean, some of the things that if anyone wants to kind of repeat that type of thing for themselves, one of the important things to do is actually run advertising in the first place, even if it's your own stuff, because the fact that there's advertising there seems to bring other advertisers out of the woodwork. This happened with Ruby Inside, especially like uh, the blog. It wasn't until Jeffrey Grossenbart reached out with uh, Peep Code and he was like, oh, I want to sponsor a bunch of blogs for $100 a month. Uh, are you interested? Uh, you know, to help promote Peep Code. And I was like, yeah, go for it. Like, I've, I make zero dollars from blogging. And so he did it. And then like the next week, I had like three different advertisers reach out. I think it was like Linode and possibly New Relic and someone else. They were like, oh, you know, we want to put our like banner on your site. And I was like, this is absolutely ridiculous. That has just happened by putting one on. Everyone else turns up. So no, I don't do outbound. It's just a case of people have seen, you know, companies like Microsoft and New Relic and Censure and just Tons of people have appeared in the newsletters. And then, I guess, coders and people just forward them around and say to the marketing department, we need to be in here. And that's how it goes. So, yeah, I've been very lucky with that. But if you want me to like talk about how to do good outbound sales, unfortunately, I wouldn't be your man. How many newsletters do you run now? And how many subscribers do you have? <laughs> this is where I sound really bad now. I can't remember exactly the number. I think it's about eight or nine. So let me, I'll quickly just run through them, and then that will help me. Uh, so we've got Ruby, then in, there was JavaScript, then there's HTML5 Weekly, there was Node Weekly at some point, oh, Postgres Weekly, DB Weekly, which is like database technology in general. Oh, we had Dart Weekly for a while, but that got rid of that because it just did not take off. And then there's a couple of others, but I can't quite... Oh, there was Status Code, but that's kind of on hiatus for now. So yeah, I guess it kind of adds up to roughly about 10. And then they also run a couple of others for other companies as well. That's an area of the business that might expand. But over the main kind of core of them, the ones that I actually own and control completely, we are at, I think today, at about 196. Well, actually, no, I think we might have just tipped to 197,000 uh, subscribers across the lot. So yeah, 200 is just around the corner. I'm looking forward to that. So how do you decide when to kill a newsletter? So for example, you mentioned the Dart one. This is another area that I struggle with is when do I kill my children? Well, in my case, 
I'm, I'm always trying to play kind of commercial reality to anything. So if something's not making enough money or it's not, or it's, no, it's not, it's not making enough money, but the, like the value isn't there for some reason or another, it goes on hold. So that's what's happened with the status code one. Now, status code has like 16, 17,000 subscribers and I'm always getting emails from people saying, Oh, how much I love it, blah, blah, blah. But the fact is I'm running this as a business. So I didn't quite find a way of making it work, but I'm coming up with ideas. So, but so that's staying on hold rather than dying. But the Dart one, um, as an example, got up to 2,000 subscribers. So it wasn't, you know, completely useless. But there didn't seem to be any real sponsorship ecosystem around it. And the growth didn't seem to be there. And I kind of, I guess I applied some of my own opinions about Dart into it as well. Um, I don't mind Dart as a language, but I just don't see it as having done what Google wanted it to do. Whereas Go, on the other hand, you know, another language out of the Google stable, you know, has, uh, I would say, surpassed its ex- you know, expectations. So, yeah, so that's that's the only one I have killed, though. So um, it's only been Dart. Yeah, so I don't even think I can bring that back. I think I actually completely deleted that list. So if Dart now becomes super, super popular, I'm going to be kicking myself. But, yeah, I'll take that, I'll take that risk. <laughs> Makes sense. And, uh, you know, yeah, I've been tempted, I think, to uh, kind of take the same approach with some of the podcasts that I've done. The problem is, is that I don't have a podcast other than the Angular podcast that I have not done for like a year or two. And uh, yeah, two of the shows I've had a little bit of trouble finding sponsors for. And so I'm kind of tempted to let them go, but I really enjoy the interaction that I get from them with the audience. And so, but from a monetization standpoint, yeah, I mean, uh, I've thought about either, you know, quitting doing them or actually, you know, going out and doing like a concerted two, two week effort to find sponsors. And then if nothing turns up, then let them die. Yeah, it can be a bit of a chicken and an egg situation sometimes. You know, if you do let something kind of lie fallow for a while, then you can end up with a situation which is very hard to actually sell the space because, you know, advertisers are very uh, canny a lot of the time and will go and investigate. And they'll be like, well, hang on, you haven't published this for like a certain amount of time. You know, mm-hmm. why are you coming to me now? So you do have to be kind of careful in those situations. But yeah, which I guess goes back to what I said about, you know, if you have advertisers, then you seem to get more. Which is why actually I kind of support the idea of actually giving space out for free sometimes. So I've done this with, I just realized another one, Mobile Web Weekly. We also have. So I've actually given space out on that for free just to kind of see how well it performs and all that type of thing to existing sponsors. Um, but it actually begins, actually, yeah, the first paid one begins this week. Um, and then it's booked quite well throughout the quarter. So yeah, sometimes you have to give, you know, before you can get. That makes sense. So one other question I have is, do you send the emails out at the same time of the week every week? They always go out on the the, the correct day for that publication. Um, it's very rare. I mean, sometimes they will go through to the next day, but it's very, very rare. It's very much the exception, uh, either because an editor, so like about three of them are, have got different editors. So if an editor is like sick or traveling or whatever, sometimes we'll delay it. But yeah, other than that, though, the time of day isn't that important to us. Uh, we haven't seen a huge amount of difference in performance throughout the day. And a lot of people in email will actually go, oh, hang on, that's weird. Like, I know it's a massive difference, but it just doesn't seem to have worked out that way for us. Um, we can send it early in the day, late in the day. It doesn't make a huge amount of difference. So people do seem to expect it, though, to be in their email box in the morning, kind of US time. But then, you know, Europeans don't seem too worried about receiving it, you know, at two, three, four in the afternoon. So... I think people just get used to whatever you tend to be do regularly. But, uh, I don't keep it too strict. So if somebody wanted to start their own mailing list, what recommendations would you have for them? As I'm talking both tools and practices. I don't want to sound like some sort of paid shill for MailChimp, but I have had you know a lot of success with it, and they've done very well by me. So 
I'm very happy with them. But of course, there are many, many other providers who are also very good and have you know, totally different systems. Uh, so if anyone does want to do stuff with like APIs and stuff, just go and check the API of whoever you're going to use and make sure it's up to kind of the scratch that you, know, you want it to be. So yeah, you need someone that's actually going to send your mail. Um, unless you actually want to build your whole system from scratch, you know, go and rely on someone like a MailChimp or even you know, even if you do want to build some of the system yourself, use something like a uh, Mandrill or SendGrid or something kind of behind the scenes, um, assuming, you know, use the ones that actually do let you send group mails. Um, otherwise, you'll get into trouble. Yeah, so it depends how much of the system you want to build yourself. But I would use, you know, one of those types of providers. Then you can, you know, go and look for a template or make one of your own. Um, as I mentioned, you know, using text is good. But if you want to use HTML, there's a lot of open source projects out there um, offering responsive email templates. So just go and you know, literally Google like GitHub responsive email templates. You will find something that you will like. That's if you you know don't mind fiddling with HTML and doing that side of it yourself. If you don't want to do it yourself, you can even rely on the templates that you know companies like Mailchimp offer to you out of the box. I'm not a huge fan of some of the built-in you know templates and especially the built-in editors on some of these services. I just find them kind of a bit slow and cumbersome to use, but they are a way of beginning and getting going. Or you could go to a site like Theme Forest and you know go and actually buy a theme. Or I guess you could even get like a freelance to make you know their own design or something. But that uh, starts getting quite expensive at that point. So get your templates, get your email sending service, and then really you know there's not a huge amount to it. You know there's different ways you can promote and advertise and services that you could lean on in that regard. But uh, in terms of you know the core service, those are the types of things that I would lean on. I guess I'm quite bare bones with things like that, though. You know, we rely on very few things other than you know the link system that I mentioned earlier uh, for collating all the stuff together. But you could very easily use Trello or Pinboard or I think probably even Delicious is still around and tie stuff together like that. So yeah, I, I guess I don't really have a huge amount of suggestions on tools. It all just kind of works. Oh, actually, I guess another one to mention would be Litmus. So Litmus is a service that. It does two different things. One of them is kind of email testing. So you kind of send your finished emails to certain addresses that Litmus gives you, and then they show you what your email looks like on, well, like about 20 or 30 different kind of clients and devices and things like that just to make sure it looks good everywhere. Um, it'll run it through about 20 different spam filters and tell you information about that, which is very important to get right. Otherwise, you'll kill your open rate if you're you know, landing in spam. But then they also have this analytic system built in, and I've not, I've only used it once, but it gives you more information than like systems like Mailchimp will give you. So you might like it. It's quite expensive to use, and I've not really done a lot with it. But uh, they do offer analytics as well. But I just use it for the testing stuff. But actually, I must admit, things have now got to this kind of a level of complexity where I'm actually buying all the different devices and things that they use. So eventually, I won't need to use them. But that's because you know I'm sending that much email and doing that much development that. I kind of need to do it in house, but uh, for you know, for most people, no, Litmus is uh, is a great service, and I think that's about it. Very cool. Do you read all of the articles that you put in the list? I'm assuming you do, and then how do you find the ones that you want to share? I've discovered through doing this. I mean, obviously, I began with Ruby, so Ruby was something that I knew really, really, really well. So it was very. I was already doing that job with Ruby Inside, uh, linking to other people's stuff. So I really had a nose for Ruby stuff. I really had a nose for, you know, who was talking nonsense, who wasn't, and how you could quickly read an article and get up to speed with stuff. So that was easy. When I moved into JavaScript and some of the other areas that I'm not quite so au fait with, even though I've done JavaScript for many, many years, I'm not quite, you know, I'm not such an expert in it as I would be with Ruby. It's somewhat more difficult. This is actually why I bought on other editors in certain situations. But 
I found that over time you do eventually develop a nose for what is good and what is bad without actually reading everything. So I try and read as much as I can, um, mostly because I'm just really interested in all the topic areas I cover. So I'm interested in learning about you know what's the latest database and the latest graph technology and all this type of stuff. So I do read it, but I don't sort of like you know go and try all of the code and all that type of stuff. And there's been a few instances uh, instances over the years where perhaps I've linked to a library that doesn't work quite correctly, and so I was like, oh, why didn't you try everything? Well, the fact is, if I tried every single thing that I linked to, it would take me like you know six hours to create each issue. So it just wouldn't be feasible to do you know, unless I was charging money for people to get it every a week and then i would probably just do one newsletter because it would take that long to do so i guess you, you just get a nose for it is, is what my short answer would be you actually get complaints from people about a free newsletter with tons of links the complaints we get are very odd so there are often complaints especially with javascript javascript is the biggest area of complaints and complainers generally now most people in javascript are really really cool really really nice and um, just like anywhere else but if there's any what any complaint is going to come along, it is from the JavaScript uh, side, and it's things like, oh, you've linked like too many Angular things in this particular issue, but then like the next issue has like no Angular stuff in it. So I don't, what I try not to do is I don't, I don't want to like hold stuff back and say, well, actually, you know, there's too many Angular links in this issue, so I'm going to split them up and then leave three of them till next week, because then it's not news anymore. It kind of defeats the point of a weekly thing. So I've had complaints like that and. I've spoken to some people about it, and you know, we've all. I always try and take it into account because if people do complain and say it's too much Angular, then it does at least put in my mind that you know perhaps I should just look and see. You know, I should remove some of the weaker things if there is a too much of a stress on a single technology. But it's all swings and roundabouts, so to a certain extent, you have to ignore uh, a lot of the complaints. But yes, they definitely do occur, um, and there's been complaints that uh, oh, you you know, you included something that an article that got something completely wrong within like a part of the article and i'm like well i don't know why you're complaining to me because i didn't produce the content i'm just linking to it like you know it was like top of hacker news it was the top of reddit for like days before i even linked to it but now i'm getting the complaint so what it seems a lot of people have is they have this idea that because there is a specific editor editing something they have like a deeper relationship with it so it's not like hacker news and reddit or twitter even where it's like kind of almost disposable they actually kind of see publications like JavaScript Weekly as almost being the publication of record within that industry. So they think of it more like an academic journal than they do as, you know, like Hacker News via email, essentially. And that's just one of the interesting kind of sociological points that I've discovered about doing this over the years is that the relationship is so different. And that is also why, you know, the advertising rates in email, I think, are so much higher than on the web. And I think this is also true of podcasting. I saw an article about podcasting the other day about, you know, how lucrative it can be in certain conditions. And it was all about the relationship that the listeners have with the hosts, even though you don't necessarily meet each other. It kind of feels like you're together. And then when the host says, oh, you know, I like such and such a web host or, you know, they advertise something, that is so much more valuable than just some lame animated you know gif on the top of the block so yeah i guess that's the long answer to that question but it i really love seeing some of these psychological and kind of sociological things that relate to publishing and that's sort of stuff you only really pick up and get a feel for once you've been doing it um a certain amount of time but i love it yeah it's really fun to learn about it reminds me to some degree of uh on amazon when you can complain like people who you know when they review a book They'll say, well, the delivery was really terrible for this book. <laughs> or the, the, you know, the postman put it in a really terrible place when they were delivering it. That might be true, but this is not really the place to complain about it. You're, you're in the wrong place. 
Exactly. Um, but yeah, I mean, some people just want to kind of complain wherever they are. I think it's, it seems to be a very human instinct to complain about things. But I guess I found the more, you know, the more business I've done and the more dealing with people I've done is that it doesn't really get you anywhere because the people that complain the most are the ones that if you complain back at them, they just don't respond to it. And they just don't acknowledge it. So yeah, you kind of have to let so much stuff go under and, you know, get, go by the by, um, the more people you deal with. If you think that one in 10,000 people out there is a crackpot, and you suddenly have an audience of 100,000 people, well, you know, you're going to run into 10 crackpots every year, basically. And obviously, I probably offend like half my list, you know, half my um, subscribers now with that. But uh, it does seem to kind of bear out, you know, most people are nice. But uh, yeah, there's a f just there's just so many like, odd people out there. But I guess that's kind of the fun of life. You know, it's a variety of life. I think you only offended 20 of them at last count. So <laughs> exactly. <laughs> So if someone wanted to get into the publishing business sort of the way you're doing it, not obviously sort of reaching on your turf, but if someone wanted to do for-profit email newsletters, first of all, would you recommend it? And second of all, what steps would you suggest they take? Yeah, I mean, it, it's it's an interesting business. It's not for the faint of heart, but then what business is? You know, if you think you would be you know savvy enough to start a podcast or a blog or anything of that nature and do well with it, then you could just perhaps do just as well with email as long as what you produce is within the constraints of the format so you know you're not gonna actually no i say that you know you're not i was gonna say you don't you can't produce a blog and turn it into like an email thing but i guess you can so patrick mckenzie the the bingo card creator guy you know he has a very infrequent email newsletter but it's always such a great article and it's always like really long and it's not the sort of thing that you know people advise you do in email but he makes it work and i know he has a lot of success with it so Really, if you do it well, you can do anything. But yeah, so if you wanted to get into it as a business, again, there's just so many ways you could do it. I mean, you could actually, you know, charge people up front for something. So there are, you know, numerous businesses out there that actually charge uh, people to subscribe to an email kind of, um, summary of things. So, um, one of them, I'm trying to remember the name, it's Jason Calacanis runs it. I think it's called, it's like a tech news kind of aggregation thing. It's a bit like what I do, but, he has a bank of writers. They kind of summarize tech news. I think it's called the Launcher Ticker or something like that. And basically, you pay $100 per year to get onto that. And I know he has, oh, I think it's something like about 800 people subscribed to it so far or something. So it's making like, you know, almost $100,000 a year or something like that. Um, I believe he, he, he said he runs it at a loss, um, but then that's because he actually finds what it does so useful that he's willing to kind of pay for the difference for now until it has enough people. Uh, but it shows you, you know, there are people that will pay to get email. Um, and it's something I've considered doing. It just doesn't really fit in with my business model at the moment, but I would like to try it at some point. So if you are well-respected, you're in a certain niche and you have a skill or a certain level of savvy about a topic that you can share, you may be able to get away with um, charging and it will kind of increase the perceived value of what you offer. But otherwise, you know, you can do it for free like I do. But then, of course, you, if you want to monetize it, you need to have advertisers or you need to promote your own stuff. Now, if you can promote your own stuff, you're doing really, really well. So I know there's a whole ton of names that go around in this scene. So like your Nathan Barry's, uh, Sasha Griefs, uh, Josh Earl, um, I think John Sommers. There's just like a whole ton of people that have email lists that are based around a topic that they're expert in. So like Josh Earl, for example, is one. Um, he has like a sublime text, uh, tips newsletter type thing. Um, I'm not sure if he's doing it anymore, actually, but so many people do that type of thing. They create something that's about a topic they know. They put out content, knowledge, 
in that email, uh, link to things that are related to their topic, but then they also on the back end sell whatever it is that they are offering. So an ebook or a video course or even like pair programming and stuff like that. So it's totally doable, but it depends on how you want to do it. I think if you are going to go in for charging people for an email, you then need to say, well, I'm becoming a publisher at this point because that is what you are doing. But with the other things, you can still be a coder or a freelancer and kind of just try it and see if it works and then scrap it if it doesn't work. So, yeah, actually, I guess in retrospect, I probably wouldn't actually advise the charging for it straight away because it does make you a publisher. And if you don't want to be a publisher, then, you know, it's probably not, not going to be the career for you because it is quite tricky. Cool. All right, Peter. Well, if people want to get a hold of you or follow up and see where you're at, uh, what what's the best way for people to uh, to contact you? Unfortunately, I don't have a personal email newsletter at this point. I probably should. So the best way is on Twitter. I am Peter C. So that's literally P-E-T-E-R-C uh, on there. And I'm always tweeting about whatever I'm up to or just general trash talk, basically. But then, you know, if anyone's interested in JavaScript, Ruby, that type of thing, just go and search JavaScript Weekly, Ruby Weekly, Node Weekly. Um, and these things will just come uh, straight up and uh, sign up to those. Awesome. Well, let's go ahead and do some picks. Curtis, do you have some picks for us? Of course I do, Chuck. My first pick is going to be a book uh, all about parenting, actually, called Parenting with Love and Logic. It's about well, parenting, raising your kids well, making their problems their own. Like when my daughter forgot her backpack this week, and I said, that's not my backpack, that is not my problem. Um, and she doesn't forget her backpack anymore. Uh, I've actually <laughs> used some of these, some of these same, and she's four almost, but I've used some Whoa. of these same techniques I I with them. Um, uh, no, I'm tough. <laughs> you use some of these same techniques um, with um, clients as well, right? Making it their problem. So I didn't get my content. It sounds like you have a problem. Not really my problem. That's your problem. And so making it theirs in how you position yourself. I don't think you'd go to the extent that this book says, because, you know, it's like treating children. You wouldn't necessarily do that with your clients, but that's really good. And then um, I'll be launching a course that's going to run um, in November and December, and we're to help you get going properly in 2015. So we're going to talk about working on your value and pricing, uh, vetting your clients, so setting up a proper process for doing that, and then a chunk on marketing your business as well. And that will run over six weeks from November. I think it's the second it'll start, and it'll go to about the middle of December. You can find out about that on my site at curtismichael.ca slash subscribe to be notified when it goes on sale on October 14th for the email people and 15th for everyone else. All right, Reuven, what are your picks? Okay, well, I have two related picks today. Uh, there's a book that I read a few years ago called Mindless Eating by this guy named Brian Wansink, who's a professor of marketing at Cornell. And he has been researching what for, for many years now what leads people to eat? And if you like all sorts of cool, clever psychology experiments, this book is just so much fun. Because he did a lot of his research at uh, restaurant schools, meaning places where they train people to run restaurants. So they have these test restaurants where the people are training to run them. And so he could go in there and run his experiments in a restaurant. So, for instance, half the restaurant would get fast music and half the restaurant would get slow music. And he found out what let people to eat more, to buy more, or eat more healthily. So, super fun book. Really, really interesting stuff. Um, both sort of as general psychology experiments and sort of on your own for your own, uh, your own eating and your own life. And so not only was that a great book, but he just came out with a new book called Slim by Design, where he basically says, folks, trying to lose weight using willpower is a lost cause. Don't even try anymore. What you need to do is take all the results of these psychology experiments we've done 
and um, apply them to your own life. So um, I think it's, uh, I mean, that, that of course remains to be seen, whether it's yet another miracle cure for everyone's eating problems. But I thought it, was, it seemed super clever to me. And the writing is just so much fun. It's definitely worth taking a look at these books. So anyway, those are my picks for this week. Nice. Eric, what are your picks? Okay, so my pick, it is safe for work, but it might not sound like it. It's called Trail Porn. Um, I've been getting into getting off running on trails and stuff like that. And this is, I think it's run by the guy who runs I Run Far, which is like a, you know, off-road trail ultramarathon uh, website. But it's basically a Tumblr blog with these gorgeous pictures of trails, remote wildernesses, that sort of thing. Um, I've been on there, I don't know, four or five times this week, just kind of going through. I got to page, I think, like nine when I was supposed to be working. So it's a really, it's a really fun kind of break. Uh, if you just want to look at some scenery and stuff like that, probably good, some good backgrounds on there. All right. I got a couple of books I'm going to pick. The first one is by Brandon Sanderson. It's called The Emperor's Soul. It's kind of an interesting read. It's a fiction book. It's a pretty short one. The other one is Think and Grow Rich by Napoleon Hill. And I'm actually tempted to see if people are interested in doing a study group on it. And I would want to do it kind of mastermind style so people can share whatever it is they need to share. So it probably wouldn't be an open discussion thing, you know, where people can come in. It would probably more or less just be on a Google Hangout or Skype chat or something. And then we would just record it, and distribute it just to the group. But I am really enjoying it. And I, I, I have to go back and read it again. <laughs> That's how good it is. So those are my picks. Peter, do you have some picks for us? Yeah, I'm going to be really evil now because I have quite a few, but then you'd expect that from someone who does what I do. <laughs> so I'm going to make it really, really quick. So yeah, the first one is a book called Girl Boss, which is by a lady called Sofia Amoruso, who owns, runs, created the company Nasty Girl, which is an absolutely huge kind of e-commerce business now. Uh, you know, and she started from nowhere. She's basically walking around the streets. I think it was of San Francisco, kind of going to like uh, sales of vintage clothes and buying them, selling them on eBay. And now they're doing hundreds of millions of revenue. It's just great to see her story. Um, and then also the things that she shares. It's very much like in the style of rework. It's that type of book. Lots of practical stuff, but then also her story mixed in with it. Um, so really, really good book. I was very surprised. And I don't see a lot of people kind of, especially, you know, in the male kind of centered kind of uh, startup world, really mentioning the book or saying they've read it. So, um, you know, I really wanted to put a shout out to that. I also wanted to shout out, though, the Entreprogrammers podcast, which I've been enjoying a lot recently. Um, I know that you've had some of the guys um, talking on here. I think John Sommers was on not too long ago. Mm -hmm. So just enjoyed that a ton. If anyone is interested in publishing, then the Nyman Lab is a very, very cool site. It just goes into what's the kind of the cutting edge, what's happening in publishing, some of the business models, things like that. I get so much inspiration from it, and it's really worthwhile seeing what uh, different players in the field are doing. It covers people big and small. So it's just really cool to see what business models are working, what's not, uh, and kind of stealing ideas uh, off of different people, really. And the same also goes for my next one, which is Growth Hackers, uh, which is kind of like a hacker news, but it's really for, you know, it's all about kind of selling yourself and promotion and, uh, you know, getting leads and just that whole kind of building up your business and getting customers really enjoying that lately. Probably more, I'm enjoying it more through Twitter actually than the website. Their Twitter stream seems to be really, really good. The next one is a blog called R29 Intelligence. Uh, it's run by people at a company called Refinery29, which is kind of like a fashion uh, startup. But they share all this stuff about split tests they run and uh, how they use Facebook to do promotions. And they just share all this background knowledge about how they're promoting and building their business. Um, and not many people know about it, but their posts are just absolutely top-notch, full of practical advice, stuff you can steal. Excellent blog. Good, good stuff. And last but not least, something a little bit more fun. Um, it's a game called Anti-Chamber. I don't know if it's ever come up on the picks here before. 
but it is definitely the best game other than sort of the main AAA titles that I've played over the last year. I don't have much time for games now, but this is an amazing puzzle game. Just a very, very basic first-person view, but you do things like walk around a corner and then, like, everything changes around you, like, so you'll turn around and it won't be where you came from, and you have all these very bizarre logic puzzles to solve. It's not a run-around-and-shoot type game. You know, you kind of get these clues appear on the wall and say, you know... Do you feel like you're running around in circles when you've sort of gone round and round this same loop about ten times? And then you'll turn around, and then the level will continue in front of you at that point. So it totally screws your head and messes up with what your idea of a you know first-person game should be. It is very, very fun. Go and check it out, even if you just watch a review of it. It's very, very fun. Uh, I think that's it. Awesome. Well, thanks again for coming. Uh, we really appreciate it. Hopefully, uh, some of our listeners will be interested in some of your newsletters. And there's a lot of value here, and hopefully people can extract that from this episode. I forgot to mention at the beginning of the show that we are doing a freelancing Q&A. Actually, by the time this comes out, it will be over. Um, but we are going to be doing it. If you go to freelancersanswers.com and enter your information, we'll make sure you know the next time we do one. And I also forgot to mention two weeks ago, we interviewed Kurt Elster, and he talked about small sites and actually built one. So I'm just going to mention it here. It's todayisasuccess.com, and it's just a dumb little thing that I threw together in an afternoon. And it just helps you focus on getting that one thing done, so your top priority for the day. And then you can mark it as done and go on to the next thing, and then it resets at midnight. So anyway, we'll wrap up the show. Thank you all for coming. We'll catch you all next week. This episode is sponsored by Mad Glory. You've been building software for a long time, and sometimes it gets a little overwhelming. Work piles up, hiring sucks, and it's hard to get projects out the door. Check out Mad Glory. They're a small shop with experience shipping big products. They're smart, dedicated, will augment your team, and work as hard as you do. Find them online at madglory.com or on Twitter at madglory. Hosting and bandwidth provided by the Blue Box Group. Check them out at bluebox.net. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more. Would you like to join a conversation with the Freelancer Show panelists and their guests? Want to support the show? We have a form that allows you to join the conversation and support the show at the same time. Sign up at freelancershow.com slash forum. 